I am um, Shelly Davis. I'm part of the Summer Women in the Word teaching team. I love Women in the Word, and I love Thursday nights. This is kind of my favorite group of the week. Don't tell all the other Women in the Words because you guys are my favorite. You should have um, outlines and verses on your table along with the questions that you just talked about. And we are going to spend some time with this gal named Rizpa. Okay, so two weeks ago tonight, I was in Israel. And it was a, um, an awesome trip. And I had the incredible privilege while I was in Israel was going to the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem. And the whole um, memorial, Holocaust Memorial, is stunning. I didn't have nearly enough time to be there. But um, the thing I was most moved by is what they call the Children's Memorial. And there were 1.5 million children exterminated during the um, Holocaust. And so they have a separate memorial for the children there, and it's a separate building. You go in a, in a dark, the whole interior of it's dark, and you walk up a ramp, and you're totally surrounded by candles that are lit for this, these 1.5 million children. And the whole time you're in that room, the names of these children are read out loud perpetually. They're just constantly read. Um, when you walk outside, there's a memorial. Uh, of the memorial, there's a bronze statue. Would you put that up for me? I don't know whether you can see or not, but there's a large face in the middle uh, and a gentleman's hands are around these children right there. And this is a statue depicts the faithfulness of a man by the name of Januz uh, Korzak. Now, Januz was a Polish pediatrician and a pretty celebrated children's author. He spent his entire life um, investing in the lives of children. And when the Germans invaded Poland in 1939, there were scores of Jewish children that were um, escaped when their parents were taken um, by the Nazis. And so Janus began an orphanage in the Warsaw Ghetto for these Jewish children whose parents had already been taken. In 1942, the Gestapo came knocking on the door of Janus's orphanage and wanted those 200 Jewish children that he had. And of course, he refused to give them to him. To them. And because of that, he also was taken to um, a German death camp by the name of Treblinka because he refused to leave those 200 children. And history at the memorial tells that on the day that the Germans were coming for him and the children, he dressed them in their best clothes told them an amazing story about the great place they were going to where there was plenty of food and lots of places to play. And then he was heard singing and leading them all in their favorite children's songs as they were loaded onto the boxcar. And then when they were unloaded at Treblinka and ushered into the gas chamber, he was heard singing with them as the um, gas jets were turned on and they all died um, together. Janus is honored at this children's memorial for his faithfulness in the hardest of times. 
His faithfulness in the hardest of times. And what an incredible display of faithfulness this Polish pediatrician had. And faithfulness, like we see in the life of Janus, is really hard to describe. But it's the concept of unfailing loyalty to someone or something. And it implies steadfast devotion and extreme fidelity. And it's the consistent practice of being faithful regardless of the extenuating circumstances around you. Um, I think we can all claim that we are faithful to our opinions and to our families and to our jobs and even to our God in the best of times. When times are good, we can say, of course, I'm a faithful follower of Jesus or I'm faithful to my convictions. I'm going to stand up. But the question I asked myself, and when that slide was up there, you could see the back of my head because I stood there for a few minutes just contemplating what this man had done and the um, influence his faithfulness might have had on those children. Um, I contemplated, would I have done that? Could I have been as faithful as Janus was to these children? And I wish I could tell you I answered that question with a resounding yes, but I didn't have an answer um, to that question when I was in Jerusalem. But tonight, we are going to look at a woman that had to answer that question in her own life, and she did answer it with a resounding yes, because she displays her faithfulness in the hardest of times. Um, and we're going to look at what it means to be faithful in the hardest of times and the truths that I think may have guided her to that kind of faithfulness. So last week, uh, Kate was here with us, and she talked about Abigail. And we heard a little bit of the history of Israel when Kate talked about Abigail. And she told us that Saul was Israel's first king. And when Saul turned away from God, then God anointed the shepherd boy, David. Saul, however, continued to rule Israel for another 15 years, um, even while David had been anointed. And we are introduced to Rizpah in 2 Samuel chapter 3 because of her relationship with Saul. Look at your verse sheet. I have that on your verse sheet. 2 Samuel 3, 7a. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah. You know, having a concubine was unfortunately a common practice in the ancient world. It represented another form of polygamy beyond taking multiple wives. Like we saw that last week with David, didn't we? Abigail was turned out not to be his only wife. Now, concubines were most often female slaves or the spoils of war. They were women that were forced into a long-term sexual relationship with whatever man had claimed them following the defeat or um, uh, occupation of another country. Look at uh, Judges 530a on your verse sheet. This is actually Deborah and Barak's uh, victory song after their victory over Sisera, and it talks of the women that will be the spoils of war. Look at Judges 5. Have they not found and divided the spoil 
a womb or two for every man. This is talking about the practice of taking women to be concubines so that you could procreate and build your tribe or your nation. Um, Now, the life of a concubine was in most cases probably a hard one. There are a couple of accounts in the scriptures where um, it sounds like maybe they um, had a little bit easier life. But for most part, as a concubine, you didn't hold any status in your household. You were subject not only to your master, but you were subject to also also to all of his wives. Now, that would be a fun thing, wouldn't it? If you were subject to um, not only this man, but his 300 wives or however many wives he had. And we actually have a great example of that in the scriptures in the story of Sarah and Hagar. If you're familiar with Sarah and Hagar, you can go back and read more about it in Genesis 16 and I think 21. Sarah was Abraham's wife and Hagar was Sarah's female slave. And when Sarah was unable to conceive and have a baby, she took her female slave and gave her to Abraham as his concubine. And then, of course, the story goes downhill because she does conceive and have a baby, and Sarah becomes jealous. And because Hagar has no rights as a concubine, the wife in the family is able to insist that she be put out of the home. Hagar has no rights of her own within the family of Sarah and Abraham, even though she's born the child of Abraham. When my kids were teenagers, I used to say they wanted all the privileges of being the adults with none of the responsibilities. Um, They wanted the privilege of driving the car, but they didn't really want the responsibility of paying for the gasoline or the car insurance. They wanted the the privilege of having a great house, but they didn't want the responsibility of mowing the yard or cleaning their room. And concubines such as Rizpah in the ancient world have the reverse situation. They have all the responsibility of being wives. They bore their master's children and raised them. They maintained a household and had a relationship with the man of that household. But they had none of the privileges of being a wife. They had no legal rights. They were low in the family hierarchy. Their children could not inherit any of the titles or property um, of their father like the wives' children could. And essentially, they were not free persons able to leave if they wanted to. They were slaves. So that's the situation we meet Rizpah at at, for the very first time. So thinking about that's what her life and situation is is, um, like, just from these few verses in, um, these few words in verse 7, we can know that she lives in a time when women had little power or control over their circumstances. She was without freedom over her person or her future. She had no legal status as a wife to protect her. So as we think tonight about how hard Rispa's life must have been as a concubine with no control over her life, there is a truth that we can discern just from that thought And that is um, a truth that will give us insight into the faithfulness that we're going to see later in her life. And that truth that will help us all develop faithfulness is that when our lives become hard because our circumstances seem out of our control, we can trust that God is sovereign. 
We can trust that God is sovereign. We don't have to be women that trust in our circumstances because we are women that can trust in the sovereignty of God. You know, um, even as modern women, women not subject to these kinds of life, sometimes our lives do feel out of control, don't they? I have a friend that recently went in just for a routine check at her doctor's office, and now she's scheduling surgery for um, a pretty serious uh, procedure. Life seemed normal, and then her circumstances spun out of control. Maybe we have a child that has been perfectly delightful and then overnight turns into a rebellious teenager and makes bad choices that we all suffer the consequences for. It could simply be that our company closes its doors and our job and our retirement plan goes right down the drain with that company. All of us can feel powerless at times because of our circumstances. But the truth that we can trust in is that no matter what our circumstances are, our God is sovereign. Look at Proverbs 3 on your verse sheet. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. And Isaiah 14, 24 says, The Lord of hosts has sworn, As I have planned, so shall it be, and as I have purposed, so shall it stand. And John 16, 33 says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And my favorite verse that um, I say to myself frequently, Job says to God, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. You know, Rizpah is a woman with no power or control over her circumstances. Her life is hard. But tonight, she reminds us that faithfulness is rooted in trusting our loving, that our loving God controls all things. So just when um, we look at Rizpah's life and think, hey, life as a concubine must be hard, we see that her life actually gets harder. Her master, Saul, King Saul, and the father of her children kills himself rather than be taken captive by the Philistines um, in battle. Look at 1 Samuel 31 on your verse sheet. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Therefore, Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. So as a result of Saul's death, he has a son by the name of Ishbosheth that becomes king and rules over Israel actually for a period of about two years. And during that time, David is actually becomes king of Judah, and he rules over Judah for those two years. Now, Rizpah, after Saul's death, does not have the privilege of grieving as a widow would have the privilege of grieving for her husband as a concubine. What happens to her is she becomes a pawn in a power struggle between two men. Um, Look at 2 Samuel 3, 7b on your verse sheet. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, why have you gone in to my father's concubine? Now, Abder was Saul's uncle, and he was the commander of Saul's army. And so after Saul's death, he rushes back um, uh, to where Rizpah is and um, takes her as his own concubine. And 
He does this in an apparent effort to usurp the throne from Saul's son, Ishbosheth. He apparently had kingly aspirations himself. It was a common practice in the ancient world to take another man's concubine um, to prove that you had gained authority over him, um, that you were now... Uh, had conquered him in some way. So Rizpah's hard life as a concubine suddenly becomes harder, doesn't it? Because like a piece of property, without say in her own future, she's transferred from one man's household to another. Now, if we were all honest tonight and we asked like for a show of hands, I think most of us could remember time in our life when we thought, life is hard. And then the other shoe dropped And it got harder, didn't it? Just out of the blue, as I was thinking about Rizpah, um, I thought back to just times in my own life when I was moaning and groaning about how hard life was, and then all of a sudden it became harder. One of those times was when um, my husband and I were young, and we had just started his veterinary practice and had taken every penny we could possibly beg, borrow, or steal and put into his um, medical practice. And we had these two babies, a two-year-old and a newborn. And I worried every day about, oh my goodness, are we going to be able to pay the water bill? And can I go to the grocery store? And is there enough money? Um, Until one of those babies had a life-threatening illness And then I just simply wanted to go back to the day when I was only worried about the water bill because now I was worried um, if this baby was going to live another day. Another one I thought of is one of my sons is in the military and he was transferred overseas several years ago. And I had a huge pity party thinking, well, this is hard. We're never going to see him. And his night is our day. We're never going to talk on the phone. He's never going to come home for um, holidays. And then he was sent to Afghanistan. And I thought, okay, well, that's harder. I was happier. I was happier when I was just worried about whether he was asleep when we called or not. So, uh, yeah, we all have times when we thought life was hard until it got harder. And that's what we see with Rizpah's experience. A hard life becomes even harder um, here. But it teaches us another truth that will lead us into um, the practice of faithfulness. When life gets harder, we can always shelter in God's protection. Instead of lamenting our misfortune like I am in the habit of doing or feeling sorry for ourselves, when life gets harder, we stand on the truth that God will be there protecting us and walking along beside us. Look at Isaiah 41, 10 on your verse sheet. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Psalm 46, verse 1 through 3 says, God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, Though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. And Isaiah 43 says, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. You know, sometimes just like Rizba, our hard lives get harder. But we can stand on the truth that God holds us. God strengthens us. He protects us. He never leaves us. 
our faithfulness grows when we understand God's presence and protection in our lives. Okay, so let's read a little bit more about Rizba. We're going to open your Bibles now to 2 Samuel chapter 21. You've probably been reading there already. Look at verse 1 with me in chapter 21. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord. And the Lord said, there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. And David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? And how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? The Gibeonites said to him, It is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house. Neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, What do you say that I shall do for you? And they said to the king, The man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel... Let seven of his sons be given to us that we may hang them before the Lord at Gabeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. Now, no one is really sure how long David has been king here when the Gibeonites, uh, when the famine occurs and the Gibeonites uh, come to him. It's probably towards the middle or even a little bit closer to the end of David's reign. And this famine lasts for three years. So David concludes that this wasn't just a seasonal failing of the crops that happens every now and then in an agricultural society because it happened repeatedly three years in a row. Um, He chooses to go to the Lord in prayer and ask him about this famine because he thinks something different is going on here. And I love that God answers him. You know, it's such a great example to us. Hey, if something's not right, don't worry about it. Go ask the Lord about it. You know, he's going to find a way to share the truth with you. So God answers him. And what he learns from God is that the famine is actually punishment for a crime that King Saul committed against the Gibeonite. When the Israel Israelites first entered the promised land with Joshua. Joshua made a covenant with the Gibeonites. Look at Joshua 9 on your verse sheet. Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them, meaning the Gibeonites, to let them live, and the leaders of the congregation swore to them. Now, anytime you made a covenant back in um, David's day, this covenant was a binding agreement that you made before God in God's name. And as you can see here from this verse, all of the leaders of the nation of Israel signed off on this covenant. But apparently at some Uh, point, King Saul, who was not always the wisest leader and who was impulsive and did things his way rather than God's way, Saul broke that covenant and he um, encountered the Gibeonites and slaughtered um, a fair amount of them. Um, Saul represented God and his people poorly here and he brings God's judgment on the nation of Israel because he has um, neglected to follow the covenant that he made in God's name and he has dishonored God. Um, So because uh, God's judgment is on the nation of Israel because of this so David asked the Gibeonites okay so what can I do we need to restore Israel's credibility and God's honor here and their response is that they want 
wants Saul's family to suffer the same possibility of extinction that they faced as a people because of Saul. And they want it carried out through the ancient world tradition of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, um, which actually Israel's laws of restitution speak to. Look at Exodus 21 on your verse sheet. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Now, we live under God's grace, don't we? So this seems um, unusual to us, but it was actually keeping in keeping with the ancient laws of restitution in Israel. The Gibeonites want the descendants of Saul executed life for life, just as he executed their people. And David recognizes that this is actually... Um, a just resolution because of Israel's own laws. So, and he agrees. So let's read how this crime of Saul's actually involves Rizpah. Look at verses 8 and 9 in 2 Samuel. The king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of a the daughter of Ai, whom she bore to Saul, Armani and Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Merib, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Mehalathite, that's a name, isn't it? And he gave them to the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord. And the seven of them perished. They were put to death in the first days of the harvest at the beginning of the barley harvest. So a life that was harder just became hardest, didn't it? Rizpah's sons are given to David, um, given by David to the Gibeonites to atone for Saul's crimes. Now, I want to point out here that one of her sons was named Mephibosheth, and if you're familiar with um, David's covenant, uh, with his agreement to protect Jonathan's offspring, one of Jonathan's sons was named Mephibosheth. So I think this is kind of like um, every kiddo in our nursery is named Taylor or whatever. So back then, they all named their kiddos Mephibosheth. But this is a different Mephibosheth than the Mephibosheth that David protected because he was Saul's offspring. And Merib here is apparently the younger, the sister of Michael that was previously given to David as a wife. And as near as I could tell in my research, she's not related to Rizpah. This isn't her, Rizpah's grandchildren here. This is the grandchildren of Saul from his real wife, not his concubine. Um, so they take Rizpah's two sons and Saul's five grandsons and they hang them. And the consequence of that is Rizpah has lost her only sons. She's lost um, truly her family connection here. Um, she's lost her protection and her provision because in the ancient world, your sons were going to be your protection and your provision. Um, and she's lost them for a crime that they may not have been responsible for. There was some controversy that I read about whether these two sons were involved in the slaughtering of the Gibeonites, but everyone I agreed at least felt like that if they were there, um, they were under Saul's direction. And so they were simply doing what the king of Israel directed them uh, to do. And the truth is they may not have been anywhere around when these Gibeonites were slayed. And this is where we see Rizpah's incredible faithfulness in the hardest of times. Um, look at 2 Samuel, look at verse 10 with me. 
And then Rizpah, the daughter of Aya, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of the harvest until the rain fell uh, upon them from the heavens. And she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts of the field by night. So Saul's descendants are executed. Their bodies, we're not sure how they were killed, but after they were executed, their bodies were actually hung up on a ledge um, for display and humiliation. Now, Mosaic law would have dictated normally that anyone was hanged um, or executed would have to be buried before sundown. Um, And again, there's disagreement uh, among theologians about why these men were left on display. I read one thought that I didn't really agree with that felt like that Orispa, wanted them left up there that she couldn't you know bear to have them buried but the the thought that I agree with that I think is probably more common a reasonable explanation seems to be that these bodies were left up there for all to see the seriousness of Saul's breaking the covenant breaking a covenant was a serious offense which had a serious punishment in the ancient world Um, and these bodies were left up there to display and humiliate the fact that um, Saul had broken this covenant before God. But one thing everyone did agree with that I researched and looked at this sweet gal was that Rizba's devotion and faithfulness is remarkable. It's absolutely remarkable. In fact, one uh, author that I read called her behavior the greatest of all maternal sacrifices. And I think I agree with him because here's what we see her do. She makes a crude tent on this ledge by the bodies out of sackcloth, which is actually a type of goat hair covering. Um, And she lives there from the time of the spring harvest until the first rain comes. And that was probably um, months. It could have been weeks. But we know that it was more than just a few hours or days because she built herself a shelter so that she could live there. And so night and day, she never leaves these exposed bodies. She wards off the vultures and the insects and the wild animals that come to devour these decomposing bodies And can you imagine what a gruesome task this was? Um, These bodies were decomposing every day. And I just came from this exact spot, and it is hot there. Um, They smelled horrific, and they looked even worse, but she never left them. She protected them despite the odor and despite the gruesome decomposition of these bodies. Even in their deaths, her faithfulness personifies a mother's sacrificial protection of her children. Mothers never leave their children, do they? And she was not leaving their bodies to be dishonored. Um, As I said earlier, faithfulness is that concept of unfailing loyalty, complete fidelity and devotion. And Rizba is the picture of unfailing loyalty and complete fidelity and devotion, faithfulness to her family, even in their death. Now, the scriptures don't tell us how long it was until this rain occurred. Um, As I said, it was probably weeks or possibly even months. But the coming of the rain signals that the curse on Israel has ended, that God's displeasure with Israel's sin through Saul has um, been rectified. 
And we can see in the next few verses that Rizpah's faithfulness accomplishes more than just guarding her own son's body out of maternal um, sacrifice. So look at verse 11 with me in the scriptures. And when David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, the concubine of Saul, had done, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Gabesh Gilead, who had stolen them from the public square of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hanged them. On the day the Philistines killed Saul on Gilboa. And he brought up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan, and they gathered the bones of those who were hanged. And they buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin and Zelah in the tomb of Kish, his father. And they did all that the king commanded, and after that, God responded to the plea for the land. You know, Rizpah's faithfulness in the hardest of times does an amazing thing. It spurs David to action. It spurs David to action. His, her faithfulness influences him to do the exact right thing. When he's told how she has honored the men of Saul's family, the men of the royal family of Saul by protecting her son's bodies until they can be properly buried, Paul, uh, David realizes what he has not done. He has not gone and retrieved the bones of Saul and Jonathan, Israel's royal family, and given them a proper burial. He's allowed them to be hung on display and then for their bones to be finally buried, but not buried in, with Saul's tribe and in his father's tomb. So um, Rizpah's faithfulness spurs David to go and do the exact right things. He gathers Saul bones, Jonathan bones, and it appears that he gathers the seven, the two sons and the five grandsons, and he takes them all to Saul's family tomb for a burial that honors God and honors Israel. And God responds to that. God responds to that because in the final verse here in verse 14, we see that um, David's actions um, allow God to once more hear the prayers of Israel and the fruitfulness of the land is restored. Once the broken covenant is restored and Israel's royal family is honored by a proper burial, God turns his ear back to Israel and answers their prayers. Now, our sweet Rizba is an unknown woman. She has no legal status. She has no freedom. She has no resources. And yet her faithfulness influences the fate of the entire nation of Israel because it is her faithfulness that spurs David to do the right thing. It is her faithfulness that ends God's judgment essentially on the nation of Israel. She's an incredible example to us tonight of the power of faith faithfulness to influence everyone around us. When we are faithful to God, when we're faithful to our families, to our commitments, just as we see Rizba in the hardest of times, I doubt if any of us will ever have to stand guard over our dead children's bodies for months, will we? But Rizba's faithfulness spurs us on to faithfulness as well. 
Once again, we see David. I mean, this is incredible to me, to me as I read through this. Once again, we see David, um, this, God's chosen influence by a woman, don't we? We saw last week how Abigail's influence over David had protected him from ruining his future kingship. And tonight we see how Rizpah's, a concubine's influence over David, her faithfulness has spurred him to um, return the bodies of the royal family to Israel and restore God's favor on Israel. You know, when I did visit that Holocaust Museum a couple of weeks ago, there was also a section of it that was so compelling. It was filled with um, the accounts of mostly Christians who had been faithful in the hardest of times and had protected the um, Jews that would have otherwise been sent to concentration camps and and killed. Um, And many of these Christians ended up in concentration camps as well. Um, In the Holocaust Memorial there, I was able to see Schindler's original list of the 1,200 Jews that he saved. They found the list in 2000, and it's on display there. And there were pictures of Corey Ten Boom and her family right before they were sent to prison camps for their faithfulness. And there were also some pretty fascinating stories of countless um, underground networks that were so faithful to spirit Jews out of um, over the mountains of Spain and off the coast of Norway. They spirited these Jewish families to safety at great cost to themselves. And, you know, I wondered, one of the thoughts that came through my head as I read these stories of faithfulness is, what story spurred them to faithfulness? Somebody else's faithfulness had influenced them to be um, faithful to these people who were at risk. I thought, I wonder if they'd ever read the story of Rizpah, if anybody had ever heard of her faithfulness. And the other thing that crossed my mind there while I was thinking about the faithfulness of ordinary people and the influence it can have on the world is that our greatest example of faithfulness truly is God himself. Truly is God himself. And his example of faithfulness needs to spur us on every single day. Because over and over again in the scriptures, we read of God's faithfulness. He's faithful to deliver us. He's faithful to heal us. He's faithful to comfort us. Faithful to bless us. Faithful to protect us. Faithful to give us grace. And above all, he's faithful to love us, isn't he? Rizpah's faithfulness... And the faithfulness of those great witnesses around us should always remind us that God is our greatest example of faithfulness. Look on your verse sheet. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, If we are faithless, he remains faithful. And Deuteronomy 7.9 says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps his covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. And Lamentations 3.21, great verse, But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Pray with me. Father, it's true. Your faithfulness um, astounds us. Your faithfulness in every area of our life 
um, it is really overwhelming to me. And Father, I thank you for these women because their faithfulness to you to come and study week in and week out the truth of your word and then faithful to be in community with each other. Um, that is an amazing blessing as well. Father, would you speak to each of our hearts tonight about areas that you want us to continue to be faithful in? Would you give us all the courage and commitment um, when we're faced with situations that are hard and become harder and then end up being hardest, would you give us the courage and commitment to be as faithful as Rizba? Thank you for um, the truth of your word for this time together tonight. And I pray this in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks, ladies.